every mom and dad and every service member that comes to serve our country is trusting us. They are putting their lives and their welfare in our hands every day. And every single one of them is hoping, praying, and depending on us to provide their loved ones the best care our nation can offer and one day return them home safely and alive. That's a trust that's placed in our hands. And our mission is to basically honor that trust, save those lives, and return those service members home with the grateful thanks of our nation. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Vice Admiral Dr. Forrest Faison to War Docs. Dr. Faison earned his medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. He completed residency training in pediatrics at Naval Hospital San Diego and fellowship training in neurodevelopmental pediatrics at the University of Washington. He's led at all levels in Navy medicine and ultimately served as the 38th Surgeon General of the Navy. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Dr. Faison talks about the role of pediatrics in military medicine and the importance of telemedicine as a force multiplier. He recounts the many lessons learned while deployed around the world in combat operations, as well as supporting humanitarian relief missions. Admiral Faison talks about his time as Surgeon General of the Navy and discusses some of the major challenges and initiatives while in that role. He also talks about his post-retirement efforts in enabling underprivileged individuals to succeed in medical careers, as well as his focus on supporting wounded warriors and their families. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Vice Admiral C. Forrest Faison III to Wardock. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Doug, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege and honor for me to be here. Admiral Faison, can you describe to us your pathway to the military and why you chose to join the Navy? So my life is probably a good example of sometimes God plans your life differently than you do. I grew up in a little town in Ohio called Rocky River. It was a little town west of Cleveland, pretty much a blue collar town at the time. Everybody worked for U.S. Steel or supported U.S. Steel. And I grew up being taught that the purpose of life was to help people. And so I went to public school there and my plan was to actually become a minister. That was going to be my game plan. I thought that'd be a great way to help people. And unlike our kids today, I didn't do any of my homework. I went to college at Wake Forest down in North Carolina predominantly because my best friend went there, but it was also pretty. The people were nice and there was a lot less snow than Cleveland. I went there with the intention of becoming a minister. And during my freshman year, the steel industry in Cleveland collapsed and my dad lost his job and got another job down in the DC area. And I couldn't afford to go to college. So I got a summer job at this brand new medical school they were building called the Uniform Services University as a lab assistant in the pharmacology department. So cleaning test tubes and taking care of lab rats. And I learned about medicine and I decided, hey, maybe I'll be a doctor instead. So I decided to become a physician. I didn't know about the HPSB scholarship program. I really didn't know about the other options, but I knew USIS was free. And so I applied to USIS and I got in. And truthfully, I chose the Navy because I thought you'd always be near a beach. I thought the Army was about camping. There's a reason God made room service. I knew the Air Force had a lot of stuff in North Dakota. They have a lot of snow. I just left Cleveland. The Navy, I thought we'd always be near a beach. And so I chose the Navy. And that's pretty much how I ended up going into medicine and then into the Navy. 
So you went to USUS and you decided to pursue a career in pediatrics training at the Navy Medical Center in San Diego. What was the factors that influenced you to make that decision? Why did you choose pediatrics? And tell the audience a little bit, why does the military have pediatrics? I went actually to medical school and I was going to be either a surgeon or an ER doc. That was my plan. But my first rotation in my third year was in pediatrics. And I just like the specialty. It's very fast paced. Kids get sick real quickly and they either get well real quickly or they die real quickly. It's very fast paced. It's very challenging because a lot of the parents that we're privileged to care for are very young themselves and in the military by the nature of deployments and assignments, you're not always near your extended family. And so I found it was just an area that was both professionally satisfying for me, but more importantly, an area of great need. And as I share with you, for me, the purpose of life was to help people. And I just felt that that was a good place for me. The military has pediatrics because the military takes care of families. One of the things that is important is that when we recruit a service member, we want them focused on their job and not worried about their family. So the military provides care for their family members so that that service member can go forward confident that their family members are going to be well cared for. In addition, by nature of things that are going on in the world right now, the United States responds to a great number of humanitarian assistance events and disaster relief events. And overwhelmingly, the cases that come out of that are pediatric cases. And so having pediatricians to be able to care for those really is very important in those types of scenarios. Even in places like Afghanistan, where we had pediatricians there taking care of little Afghan children to build goodwill and support for the Americans in theaters like that. So pediatricians serve a variety of roles in the military that are really quite important today. You obtained additional training at the University of Washington in neurodevelopment pediatrics. Can you tell us a little about this fellowship and how it benefits military medicine? Neurodevelopmental pediatrics is the care of children with developmental disabilities. So that's things like autism, mental retardation, cerebral palsy, birth defects, learning disabilities, things like that. About 2 to 3% of children will have one of those conditions. And as you know, the military stations service members all over the world which means their families go with them all over the world. And because of that, the Department of Defense runs a school system that provides schools all over the world in many bases where we've got our service members located. The purpose of developmental pediatricians is to go there and work with the schools to help children with learning disabilities, a condition on the autism spectrum, things like that, to get the care and services that they need so that service members can go forward to these stations confident that their children are not going to fall behind in their education and are going to get the health care that they need to care for whatever condition they have. We know that you ultimately took some strategic leadership positions within Navy medicine, but prior to that, you had time practicing as a clinician and seeing a lot of patients. Were there any memorable cases or interesting things that you remember from your clinical time right out of that fellowship? Right after fellowship, I went to mainland Japan and I was responsible for what are called medically related services. So those are medical services that are in support of children in the DOD school district throughout Japan. So I was on the road a fair amount evaluating and taking care of children with everything from learning disabilities to autism to mental retardation to care for them and make sure that they got what they needed both educationally, but also medically. And that was very fulfilling. And I actually enjoyed that. I loved taking care of those children. You don't really cure autism, but what you do is you help families 
work through the grieving process of the normal child that they're not going to have, and then come to a new reality of a life that will be very different than what they perhaps imagine, but very rewarding and very fulfilling. And I just found that professionally rewarding. And I found that, again, aligned with the uh, purpose of life is to help people. I felt that was about my purpose. And I just really enjoyed that a lot. And so I did that until I was asked to become the medical director. And I was happy. I did not seek executive medicine positions. I was taking care of these children. And I found out that the commanding officer, Captain, later Rear Admiral Al Diaz, wanted me to be the medical director. And I didn't want to do that because that's pushing paper. And it's like, I don't want to do that. I'm a doc. I avoided this guy for five days. Wherever he was, I was somewhere else, except I ran into him in the passageway and he said, come with me. And he sat me down in his office. He said, I'd like you to be the medical director. Well, he's your CO. What do you do? Yes, sir. I'm happy to serve. And he looked at me and he said, this is going to change your life forever. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, probably not in a good way, but I went ahead and did it. And he was right because as I got more into executive medicine, I realized that executive medicine gives you the opportunity to help people but on a much broader scale than you ever could one-on-one in a clinic. And I found that really professionally rewarding. And so when I made flag, I invited Admiral Diaz to my promotion ceremony. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, sir, you were right. That was kind of the trail that led me to executive medicine. That was kind of the acid test for me in deciding where to go and what to do with my career. And it all started in Yokosuka. The most memorable case in Yokosuka for me happened after I became the medical director. And it was one of the first transplant cases in Japan. The CO and the XO were off island and I was the acting CO. I'll never forget this. It was a rainy morning and this family got up and got their kids ready for school, drove them to the school on base. The little five-year-old boy jumped out of the car, started running up these wet stairs to go to school, slipped, fell, and hit his neck on the stairs and had an instant spinal cord injury that was lethal. We brought him emergently to the hospital and tried to resuscitate him without success. And while that was happening, I was contacted by this group in Japan that were interested in getting transplant services started in Japan. They didn't really do transplant services at that time. They have a very different outlook on disease and on illness. So I said, well, I got to call the CEO and the XO, and I couldn't get a hold of them. So I had to make a decision because, as you know, there's a window of opportunity to do that. And I said, okay, we're going to do it. It's one of the lessons that I tell people. You have this little inner voice inside of you that tells you when to do something. And that little inner voice was saying, go ahead. If the family is willing, and I counseled the family, let's go ahead. And they harvested this little boy's kidneys and corneas and transplanted them into little Japanese children. Those families have stayed in contact to this day. And it really helped that family work through the grieving process. And it was the introduction of transplant services in Japan. That for me was probably the most memorable case in Japan. So you mentioned earlier that you chose the Navy because you were more likely to be stationed by a beach or near boats and ships. But sometimes those beaches and boats and ships aren't in America and they're in remote places and you have to provide care in places like Japan and Guam and onboard ships. How do you prepare for that for the first time you go and you don't have that safety net or that comfort zone that you had back in training? So after my internship in pediatrics, I was assigned to be the radiation health officer on board a nuclear cruiser, the USS Texas. And I was nervous, to be honest with you. I was very nervous. But I will tell you, I got great training at USIS when I was a medical student there on how to approach things, the importance of operational medicine, things to think about and to look for. 
the Navy sent me to school to be a radiation health officer. And part of my internship was spent in adult primary care. And so with those three things under my belt, I felt pretty comfortable. I think it's more of a mindset. And then as I became more senior, I realized that the Navy is not going to send these junior officers to places where we're going to put people's health care at risk, or we're going to put a junior officer in the position of being over his head. I realized that even though I didn't really appreciate it at the time, I was actually pretty well prepared for that assignment. So you have combat experience as the U.S. Medical Task Force Commander, which involved leading a large multi-service task force responsible for all combat casualty care and healthcare operations in Kuwait, Qatar, and southern Iraq, including all medical logistics operations throughout the Middle East. Tell us about that assignment and your biggest challenges during that assignment. That was a groundbreaking event that occurred. Before then, that had always been an Army mission because it was ground forces, ground logistics support ground medical supplies, and that had always been an Army mission. And that mission was being accomplished by the 1st Medical Brigade under the amazing command of Colonel Jim Rice. And through some discussions that occurred to reduce the op-tempo demand on Army medicine, it was suggested that the Navy command element and contingent that was staffing the Expeditionary Medical Facility there at Camp Erifjan and throughout the region take over that additional mission. And I was privileged to be the first commander of that joint task force. So the Army basically transferred that mission to the Navy. And I will tell you, that was new for the Army. The Army commander, for whom logistics is a big deal, was now giving that mission to another service. The biggest issue that I had to make sure that we did was build trust. My leadership team and I, we would sit around and think about what could the leadership of the Army, that was the 377 Theater Support Command and 3rd Army, what could they ask for so that when they asked for it, we were ready to go, or we would suggest it before they asked for it. And whenever they needed something, the answer was always yes. And so over time, we built trust with them. And I found that that was really probably the biggest challenge that I had. The biggest lesson that I had was that was my first exposure to the Joint Force. And I learned a lot about how the services come together to create a joint force and the importance of that in future conflicts. And then from that, the coalition forces, because we got to work with the Brits and others who were allies in the field there. And I learned a great deal out of that. So you mentioned that you were commanding a medical facility and the area of your responsibility included part of Iraq, but also Kuwait and Qatar. What kind of patients were you seeing at that medical facility, and what was the role of the medical facility? The medical facility, the main EMF, which was a Roll 3 hospital, was at Camp Erifjan. It was out in the desert out there, but we had clinics kind of all over the AOR. So we had clinics throughout Kuwait, up at Navistar, which is the crossing point into Iraq, and a few other places to take care of the force that was stationed there. We took care of a broad spectrum of things, from just routine primary care things to injuries. We were seeing a fair number of IED casualties at that time because the insurgents realized that all the supplies for the forces in Iraq came into theater in Kuwait City. And then they were loaded onto trucks, taken up to Camp Navistar, which was a staging camp right at the border. And then a cover of night went over the border and then up the road to Baghdad. The insurgents knew that if they could disrupt the supply lines, they would have a strategic advantage. So we were seeing a fair number of IED casualties as a result of that. 
So we were seeing the full spectrum of things there. And I will tell you, I have never been so proud to be an American as when I saw the servicemen and women and the job that they did over there in pretty austere circumstances, but they did just amazing, amazing work. You mentioned that you had a kind of introduction to the joint force. And a lot of times younger in your career, you can tend to get siloed within army medicine, air force medicine, Navy medicine, but now you have to deal with all of the forces working together. What lessons did you learn in that environment? And what is the mission of Navy medicine, especially when the primary combat role is ground combat? I learned that success today is a team effort. No single service can do this alone. The joint force really has got to do this together. So when we had casualties, as an example, those casualties might have received their care from an army medic, been evacuated by an army helicopter to our EMF, where we took care of them until the Air Force came and picked them up at Ali Asalim Air Base, flew them to an army base in Longstool, and then ultimately back to Walter Reed. So I learned to be able to honor the trust that's placed in our hands of providing the best care our nation can offer and everything that we can do to return those who serve our country home safely and alive is really a team effort. I saw that most poignantly in probably the most memorable case that we have that actually is a case I used to help guide some of my decisions when I became the Surgeon General. We got new service members into theater every six months. So every six months, the rotation would occur for Army and Navy folks to rotate in. And we would go up to Ali Asalim Air Base and greet them, usually about three o'clock in the morning because it's so hot during the day that the planes can't get lift. So we'd greet them, we'd bring them down to the camp, bed them down, and let them get over jet lag. And then we'd bring them up. And together as a joint unit, Army and Navy working together with Air Force support, would teach them how mass cows worked and how things had happened. And we did this for this one evolution. By the time we got that all done, it was about six o'clock in the morning. We'd go to the chow hall, the DFAC, and have breakfast. On Air of John, whenever there was a mass casualty event, you can imagine there's always a lot of looky-loos that want to go up and see what's going on and can get in the way. The signal on this army base, Camp Air of John, when there was a mass casualty was anchors away. And so we're sitting down to have breakfast and anchors away place. And so we all run up to the EMF. On the horizon are three helicopters that appear with nine IED casualties. These are pretty horrific. A couple traumatic amputations and evisceration, a couple DOAs. And we would triage them on the helipad there and then bring them back into the MassCal unit and ultimately to surgery and beyond. My job was to make sure everybody was hydrated. If it was going to occur over a meal, make sure the food was there, supplies were flowing appropriately. And I looked in the midst of all this blood and carnage, there was this young corpsman who had just come to us from Gulfport, Mississippi, who had never seen blood. The only thing he'd ever seen was runny noses because they don't get sick people in Gulfport, Mississippi. And he was in shock because he'd never seen blood. And I went up and put my arm around him and said, how's it going, son? He goes, okay, well, tell me about your family. And over about 10 or 15 minutes, talked him out of shock and then handed him off to an army chaplain who took care of him to get him back into the fight. And I realized that one of the important lessons of leadership is that you are the physician for those that you are privileged to lead. And it requires a team to take care of them. The other lesson I learned was we got to make sure those corpsmen, medics, and those Air Force technicians are prepared for combat. Because if they go into shock because they've never seen blood before, people are going to die. 
And that led to some of the things that I put in place when I was a surgeon general to get over that. Navy and all the service medical departments, our mission is to honor the trust. I tell folks that every mom and dad and every service member that comes to serve our country is trusting us. They are putting their lives and their welfare in our hands every day. And every single one of them is hoping, praying, and depending on us to provide their loved ones the best care our nation can offer and one day return them home safely and alive. That's a trust that's placed in our hands. And our mission is to basically honor that trust, save those lives, and return those service members home with the grateful thanks of our nation. The exact specifics of the mission that we do depends on what the mission is, because it's a joint force right now. It's continuity of care from point of injury all the way back to definitive care. And it's preparing for the next challenge. The next war ahead very likely is not going to be the same war that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. It may be against a peer adversary, and it may be in the maritime domain for the Navy, which is much larger than a single country of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so how do you take care of casualties in a distributed domain if the golden hour turns into the golden three days? How do you keep those people alive? What do you need to be able to do that? That's the mission of the Navy to ultimately be able to return those service members back home to their loved ones. So you also served as the director of DOD telemedicine. In that role, you led the DOD worldwide and implemented the telemedicine program. Tell us about why telemedicine is important for the military and how you see this technology evolving in the future. Telemedicine is incredibly important for the military because it allows us to extend care to remote or isolated areas. We've got service members all over the world, but we don't have medical departments all over the world. We can't. So we need to be able to extend care beyond the four walls of the MTF into these remote, isolated, and underserved areas. And telemedicine allows us to do that very effectively. It allows us to what I call reduce the tyranny of distance. And we've used it very successfully. Guam, which you mentioned earlier, is a good example of that. We have an intensive care unit at the Naval Hospital in Guam. It's one of the busiest in DOD. The coverage for that comes not only from the intensivists there at Guam, but also from intensivists at Triple R Army Medical Center in Hawaii because of telemedicine. And that allows us to provide continuity of care and services for intensive care patients that would otherwise be difficult to provide. It also helps us decide who needs to get on a medical evacuation flight to go to Tripler. That's a big deal for one of the smaller commands there. And so telemedicine has been very, very effective. I think the COVID pandemic has brought telemedicine into the mainstream. 44% of Americans at some point during the COVID pandemic had a telemedicine visit and they liked it. And it's important because 70% of primary care patients don't need the hands-on touch of a physician. For our service members, it's a big deal to take time out of their work, get in the car, drive to the hospital, get seen, get their meds, and come back home again. Telemedicine can help you get around all of that. And so I think the future is very bright for telemedicine. It's an operational imperative, I believe, for the distributed force of the future. Now, having said that, we can't get too dependent on it. Because we may not have telemedicine in a contested environment against a peer adversary. So if we become too dependent on it, we lose the ability to practice independently and those critical thinking skills, which are critical in a combat situation. And so there's a balance there to support the force, keep the force on the job, but not have our medical force become so dependent on telemedicine that they can't function independently when called upon. One of the things that Navy medicine is known for and is particularly good at is responding to 
humanitarian crises around the world. And I know that you played a role in responding to things in Haiti, in Fukushima, Japan. Could you tell us a little about your role in those disasters and what the Navy brings to the table? We have a global economy today. Our economy, our well-being, our way of life is really dependent on global security. This is why our forces are all around the world. For the Navy, this is why so much of the Navy is forward deployed as an expeditionary force, because preserving stability and flow of trade and goods and services is pretty essential to our way of life and our health as a nation. Just like wars can be disruptive to global economies, so can natural disasters. The United States is one of just a couple countries that maintains a standing medical force to be able to get out the door quickly to respond to natural disasters when they occur with the intent of saving lives, providing relief, and at the same time, providing stability for all the reasons that we talked about. And so I was privileged to be involved in three humanitarian assistance and disaster response evolutions. The first was Haiti, when I was the chief of operations for Navy medicine. The Haiti earthquake happened, and that earthquake flattened every hospital in that country. They basically had no medical capability. And so the call came in of, hey, can you get the hospital ship Comfort down to Haiti to be a casualty receiving center? And of course, the answer is yes, except that that ship was in dry dock in Baltimore with a big hole in the side because we were replacing the CT scanner. So my very dear friend and an amazing leader, Rear Admiral Mike Stocks, was the Fleet Forces Command Surgeon. And I called Mike and I said, hey, Mike, if you will work to get the ship patched and get it ready to get underway, I will get the ship staffed and provisioned so that the ship can go directly from Baltimore down to Port-au-Prince. Because normally it would go to Miami for a five-day port call to take on supplies and personnel. But that's five days you could be saving lives. And so over 72 hours, we got that ship patched, staffed, provisioned, and underway. And I'll tell you, I've never been so proud of the men and women. And it was reservists showing up at the pier side from all the services. It was Army, Air Force volunteering to go on the ship and ride the ship down. And it was our service members that dropped what they were doing and got underway to go save lives. And that allowed us to not only provide a medical capability for that country, but also an infectious disease and preventive medicine capability to prevent cholera and some of the other things that you see after natural disasters. The second one was the Zika crisis. And I tell you, I'm so proud of our military medical research institutes. What most people don't realize is that DOD developed the first test for Zika and so did a lot of the testing for the southern United States while the CDC was ramping up. And again, just get her done. And they just did an amazing job developing a test, validating that test, and then deploying it to help American citizens at a time when people were very scared about the consequences of Zika infection, especially pregnant women. And the third area was Ebola. I was involved in the Ebola response. Navy medicine in their research labs, the Navy Medicine Research Lab, have got flyaway lab testing capability. It's pretty much disposable. You can pack it on a plane and be underway in a matter of hours. And so when the Ebola crisis broke in Western Africa, we had teams from our research labs, augmented by Army research lab teams, going and doing the testing for Ebola in those countries in Western Africa, which was important because you know that the early symptoms of Ebola are very indistinguishable from the flu. And so being able to test and diagnose Ebola early 
allowed us to prevent exposures and ultimately to save lives. So was blessed to be a part of all three of those. I've been proud of military medicine and its ability to drop whatever they're doing and go and save lives because they don't do it for money. They don't do it for fame. They do it because somebody needs their help. You told us that you were stationed in Japan right after your fellowship. And later on, Japan had a pretty major event in Fukushima with the earthquake and tsunami. What was your role there? At that time, I was the commander of Navy Medicine West. All the Navy and Marine Corps hospitals on the West Coast and in the Pacific fell under my purview. And when that disaster happened, we mobilized very quickly because the Japanese were going to need help. What's not known is when that happened, we were very worried about the prevailing winds carrying radioactive material south over Tokyo. We had virtually every radiation health officer in Navy medicine on an airplane with their monitoring capability headed towards Japan within a matter of hours of that disaster occurring. In addition, we had a fair number of worried Americans in Japan, both military dependents as well as embassy personnel and industry personnel that were living over there who wanted to be evacuated and wanted to know what was going on. And this was a very sensitive issue because you can imagine if we started evacuating American citizens, then what does that say to the Japanese citizens? And so we worked very closely with the embassy and with PACOM and with the combatant commanders in Japan and brought those people into the hospital and in the exam rooms did the counseling and allowed them to decide whether or not they wanted to be evacuated. And a fair number did. We evacuated over 72 hours about 9,000 American citizens out of Japan to reception centers back in the United States in Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco, and then helped them get forward travel back to their home of record. All of that was set up within 72 hours, and I was in charge of doing all of that. Now, again, it was a team effort that I was just so proud of those folks. We also brought in all the pregnant ladies and all the parents of children who were less than five years old and provided them iodine tablets. So it's important because the thyroid is very vulnerable with radiation and provided counseling for them as well as the worried well. And then when things settled down, we did counseling for anyone that wanted it. So we provided mental health services and sprint teams. Those are rapidly deployable psychiatric intervention teams to Japan to help with the mental health response, both during and after the crisis. And so it was a multi-pronged effort that was, again, a team effort that I believe really helped a lot of people. You served as the Navy Deputy Surgeon General and the 38th Navy Surgeon General. What were your biggest challenges facing Navy medicine during your leadership time, and how did you overcome those issues? I have never been so proud to serve as when I had those two positions. We came back from OIF and OEF with the highest combat survival in history. As you know, men and women were being routinely saved on the battlefield who would have died in any previous conflict. Unprecedented combat survival. But we came home and DOD's global commitments did not decrease. Normally, after a conflict, you come home and there's a period of peace before the next conflict occurs. That didn't happen. We came home and global commitments continued around the world. But there was a need to fund those global commitments and at the same time, recapitalize the fighting force, get those ships into dry dock, replace those airframes that needed to be replaced at the end of their life cycle. We needed those things. And so there was a scramble and a need for resources. And there was reluctance by the Congress to raise taxes. And so the department started looking around as where can we get resources necessary to meet our global commitments and recapitalize the force. 
And that was my biggest challenge, what was termed military medical modernization, where we came home with the highest combat survival and record to the largest change in military medicine in over 50 years. And it was driven because medical was seen as a bill payer for some of these resources that were required. Part of this was driven by Congress and Congress's desire to get additional efficiencies out of military health care. Part of it was driven by the services with personnel cuts because personnel costs are about 60 to 70% of the service budget. And so my job was to kind of navigate that and help people understand the consequences because our nation expects our military to fight tonight to defend our freedoms and protect us. But if you're going to fight tonight, you got to be prepared to save lives tonight. And you've got to be able to keep that force healthy to be able to deploy tonight. Every service member today is important. You've seen how increasing specialization, technical requirements of MOSs and jobs and skill sets, longer training pipelines, the reality that only one out of four graduating high school seniors is even eligible to come on active duty. All of that has come together to show us that every single service member is important to the mission. We've got to keep them healthy and on the job, and we've got to keep them focused on their job, which means we've got to take care of their families. Having a medical department that can deploy tonight, that is going to keep a worldwide global force healthy and on the job and take care of their families at the same time, that's not cheap. That's expensive. And moreover, it can't be rebuilt overnight. And it's also a good value because numerous studies have shown that the direct care part of the military health system is very cost-effective and very effective. My job was to help people understand that you can make these decisions. I understand where you're trying to go, but let's do this smart and do it informed because we have to make sure that, to be sure, there are areas that can benefit from modernization and efficiencies, no doubt about it. But if you're going to go down this road and fundamentally change a health system that's just delivered the highest combat survival in history, you ought to have some answers to some pretty critical questions. What is success? What are we going to measure to say that we're successful? And hopefully it's not just savings. What must we preserve for combat survival against a peer adversary? We came out of Iraq and Afghanistan with this high combat survival, but we also had every advantage. Facing peer adversaries in a battle space where we may have none of those advantages. So what do we have to preserve for high combat survival in any future conflict? That's the expectation of every service member and their family. And then are planning assumptions valid? Those four questions. One planning assumption I think we've seen is not valid. There was an assumption that there was unlimited capacity in the civilian sector so that we could downsize military medicine and rely on the civilian sector. And I think COVID has shown us that's just not true. The civilian sector is very fragile. And so my job was to tell truth to power. And I think that was the greatest challenge. I understood why they were trying to do it. I wanted them to be strategic about it because healthcare's matrix. It's not linear cuts. If you cut to a certain point, ultimately the whole house of cards falls down because everything is matrixed. And what takes 10 to 15 minutes to cut from the budget can take up to 10 years to replace. And so we ought to have pretty clear answers to those four questions before we start going down this trail. And so I spent a lot of time talking to senior leadership in the department and in the building about this and tell truth to power. And I thought that was important. It wasn't popular. Sometimes there's a cost to telling truth to power. 
But it was important because if you won't tell truth to power as a senior officer, who will? I tell the folks that I mentor, they don't put stars on your collar to look pretty and have a nice office in a nice parking spot. They put those stars on your collar so that you've got the courage to tell truth to power, to look out for those that you're privileged to lead, and to make sure that smart, informed decisions are being made. It's not there to be a popularity context, and there may be a personal cost to that, but that's why you are a senior leader. And so that's what I saw as my job, and that was my biggest challenge. And then once you've made that case, then they have to decide what they're going to do. And then the second challenge I had was being able to translate that to those I was privileged to lead, to help them understand why things were occurring as they were. And so I think that was my biggest challenge. For me, True North was the trust to make sure that whatever was done to modernize military medicine, we had clear answers to those four questions because those four questions form the foundation of being able to honor that trust that I spoke about earlier. So we go back to the joint medical idea, and you mentioned the National Defense Authorization Acts, and you were in the chair when a lot of these NDAAs were putting a budget towards the Defense Health Agency. So they were going to be fully funded. Health procurement dollars were going to be spent differently. A lot of things were going to be changed. As you see this Defense Health Agency coming into being, what do you think is their biggest challenge? And how can we prepare for the next fight, this near-peer potential adversary, and provide for the beneficiaries that we've committed to? There are some amazing people, just incredible Americans working at the Defense Health Agency. It is an opportunity, but it's also some challenges. They are under incredible pressure to deliver, to save resources, realize efficiencies, deliver value, but they are having to do it without necessarily full agreement on the strategic approach or roles and responsibilities. And that's been a challenge. It's not DHA's fault. That's just the nature of the beast. The approach that they were given, I think, was somewhat challenging. They were tasked to find resources, for, as I talked about earlier, find savings, find efficiencies, improve the service's ability to be combat ready. But the approach that they were given by Congress to do this was very challenging. They were basically creating a large bureaucracy, converging cultures, centralizing things, and then expecting short-term savings. Well, most times in the department, creating another large organization doesn't really yield savings, especially when you're converging cultures and you haven't really clarified what success is, haven't really fully defined roles and responsibilities. And most of the defense agencies, it's years before they realize savings. And it's not their fault. That's just the nature of the beast. I've not really ever seen a risk analysis. And that's important, especially given the long pipeline to replace what we cut especially given how matrixed healthcare is, it is very important that we have a clear risk analysis to help inform resource decisions. And then I think a very important part of the future, and I'm really pleased that USIS, what Dr. Woodson is getting after that, is civilian partnerships. The model used to be for the military medical departments, when we were at war, when we came home, we kept our wartime skills current by taking care of patients in the MTF. But we're not seeing those sick patients anymore. And so I get back to that corpsman from that clinic in Gulfport, Mississippi, seeing peacetime healthcare because of advances in medical practice, 
because our patients have got more choice than ever before because Congress wants to say thank you to the all-volunteer force. We're not seeing the sick patients that are going to allow us to preserve combat-relevant skills and competencies in the future. We've got to have these partnerships with the civilian sector to be able to do that. And this is one of the things that I started when I was the Surgeon General was the connected corpsmen in the community by taking corpsmen and putting them at major trauma centers around the country to give them that experience so that no corpsman would be seeing blood for the first time in combat. And so we've continued to do that because the corpsman is the most important person for combat survival in any future conflict. And so there's got to be civilian partnerships for the future. We also need it because if you look at the casualties that we're likely to get, we're going to need more beds than are available in the military health system. So having those partnerships and those relationships already built is so critically important. You cannot surge trust in a crisis. And so we've got to have those relationships built and ready to go. More recently, you've served as the Senior Vice President for Research and Innovation and Chief Medical Officer at Cleveland State University. During this time, you helped develop a pathway to practice program. Can you tell us about that program? As I shared with you earlier, Cleveland's my hometown. And when I retired from the military, I was recruited to go to Cleveland State to help them build programs to get more disadvantaged, underserved minority students into healthcare careers. It's an area of great need right now. If you look at the medical profession, it is less and less reflective of the population that we serve. We don't see the diversity in the medical profession that we see in our population. And that's got real impacts because there are plenty of studies out there that show that if your doctor doesn't look like you, you are much less likely to follow their advice. So in Cleveland, as an example, 60% of the population in the city is Black American. 6% of the physicians are. And it's not just a matter of saying, okay, we'll just get more people into pre-med programs and they apply and then go to medical school. It's not that at all. If you look at what's required to actually be ready to go to medical school, you got to have a strong foundation in the STEM disciplines. You have to know how to study. You have to know how to take a test. You have to have the money to be able to apply to medical school and the money to go to interview and take the MCATs. And then you've got to be willing to incur debt to go to medical school. Well, if you look at many of the minority students, they don't have those things. So in Cleveland, you don't have those things. Cleveland State caters towards an underserved, disadvantaged minority student population. Many of these students are first generation. Many of them hold down jobs to be able to go to college. Many of them come from families that live below the federal poverty line. And they go to public schools and they don't have that foundation. So we started a program called Pathway to Practice, where we actually went into the elementary schools to get young students interested in careers in medicine, and then started tutoring them to teach them how to study for tests, to teach them how to study, to get them through the STEM curriculum. And then when they came to Cleveland State, we had a boot camp before they started. And then we provided them tutoring free of charge. And we provided them their books. We provided them support services. We paid for them to take the MCAT, the Kaplan course. We paid for them to get a suit to interview. We lined them up with a physician in the community to be a mentor for them. And we went from about 30% of minority students getting accepted into medical school to 85%. And so I was privileged to be a part of that. And that program has continued today under the leadership of folks that are at Cleveland State. I think it's a model for the nation because we really have got to come to grips with diversity in the medical profession. 
I really learned that from my experience in Cleveland with the pandemic and things like that. Yeah, let's talk about the pandemic. You played a big role in Ohio's response to the pandemic and COVID in general. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I showed up at Cleveland State, and three days later is when COVID happened. <laughs> the university, like all universities, didn't really have a plan for this. So we had to build this plan as we went and take the entire curriculum, all 1,200 plus courses, and put them online. By nature, the students that I just shared with you that go to Cleveland State, we had 200 students that couldn't afford laptops and another 200 that got their connectivity at Starbucks, which, as you know, all the Starbucks closed. And then we had about 100 students that, if we had shut down the dorms, would have been homeless or gone to unsafe social situations. So it was navigating all of that and doing that in a very safe manner. Because, as you know, colleges and universities, by their very nature of close contact, things like that, are very high-risk environments. Ohio was one of the few states that realized that it would be good for all the public universities to coordinate their efforts and align with best medical practices. And so I was asked to take the lead on that for the state and was privileged to work with some amazing individuals at all the public universities. And we coordinated our COVID response for that. The result of that was we had an outbreak that was much, much less than the general population. As an example, at the height of the pandemic, Cleveland had a 28% COVID positive rate among people that were being tested for COVID. At Cleveland State, it never got above 0.3% because of the things that we put in place. We put in place what are called the six layers of protection. And that was no matter where you went to school in Ohio, you would be part of the six layers of protection so that moms and dads and students could be confident that no matter where their student went to school in the state, they would be protected and that protection would reflect best medical practice. And like I said, I was privileged to be able to lead that. While we were doing that, we were asked by FEMA and by the governor to stand up a federal mass vaccination center. And Cleveland State was chosen as the site for that. And the reason was within a mile of the campus, 75% of the households are below the federal poverty level. And within four miles, 60% of those neighborhoods are socially vulnerable. So this was an effort to put that mass vaccination center in a central location to make it easy for people to get vaccinated. And we worked very closely with the Ohio National Guard who were mobilized and soldiers from Fort Knox who came up from Kentucky to create a vaccination center that was going to be easy. We applied industrial engineering so that from the time you went in to the time you left, there was never a line and it was never more than 20 minutes. And we opened this up and we vaccinated a little over 260,000 people over a 12-week period. But I also learned some pretty important lessons out of that. The first was, despite making it incredibly easy, there were people who just didn't show up, that we actually ended up having to go house to house with church pastors and others to convince people to get vaccinated. And what we found was that in certain ethnic groups and demographic groups, there is incredible distrust of organized medicine. It's what I call the specter of Tuskegee. You remember the syphilis trials back in the early part of the last century. That distrust is alive and well today, and that impacts healthcare going forward. I also learned that there really are the haves and the have-nots and the importance of urban public health. And Cleveland is no different than many other major cities. If you look at Cleveland, one out of six kids has got measurable lead in their blood. Lead causes mental retardation. The women of Cleveland, because of this distrust, account for are about 3% of all the women in the state, but are about 60% of all breast cancer cases. 
they don't get care for chronic diseases. And so what we saw was the mortality from COVID was about twice what it was in the suburbs. There's a neighborhood right next to the Cleveland Clinic called Fairfax. And then there's a neighborhood in the suburbs about two miles away called Shaker Heights. So two mile difference is a 28 year difference in life expectancy. I learned the importance of public health and urban public health and that there really are the haves and the have nots. You can't go get public health if it's not safe to go out of your house, if the bus doesn't go by your house. One out of four families don't have a car in Cleveland. That's not unique to Cleveland. That's typical of many cities that we really need to have an approach for. How do we deal with this before the next pandemic occurs? So I really did take away some lessons learned out of that. So currently you serve on the board of the Simplify and America's Fund, which are philanthropic organizations supporting wounded warriors and their families. You've also published articles and spoken at national conferences on the topic of wounded warrior care. What are your perspectives and thoughts on this important area? This is an area of passion for me. As I share with you, we had the highest combat survival in history in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were routinely saving men and women who would have died in any previous conflict. And they came home with their entire lives ahead of them. No expense was spared in their treatment. The Department of Defense and that joint force that I talked about did an amazing job caring for these young men and women, and they are just heroes. Today, when less than 1% of our nation serves, these young men and women raised their hand and said, send me, and they made a difference. They are arguably the best of that generation. But when they came home after they made it through, and most of them did not go back on active duty, they then transitioned to the civilian sector. And you say, okay, well, what's next? When I was a flag officer, so for the nine and a half years that I was a flag officer, every time I met with an elected official or or someone on the Hill, I asked them three questions. What should the future look like for wounded warriors and their families? What is our national strategy to realize that future? And what's the role of the government? And no one could answer those questions, which told me that we don't have a plan. And yet this is the best of that generation, the less than 1% that have served. And I saw the lack of a plan play out. When I was the commander at Navy Medicine West, there's a park right next to the medical center called Balboa Park. It's a huge park. We saw a significant increase in homeless OIF, OEF veterans living in that park. We partnered with the city every year to do Operation Standout, where we would take tents and set them up in the park to provide immunizations, shoes, eyeglasses, dental care for these folks. And I'll never forget at the opening ceremony, I was privileged to speak at this. And the whole time I was speaking, there was this young man, he couldn't have been more than 25 years old, barefoot, stood at attention the entire time I was speaking. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, son, tell me your story. And he was an army soldier who had just gotten out in a city for which is incredibly military friendly. No shortage of people wanted to hire him but he couldn't get a job. And so he was homeless living in the park. So we took him under our wing to take care of him. And so you have to ask, what's our game plan here? So, well, we got transition assistance. Well, that's great. It teaches you how to dress for an interview. It teaches you how to write a resume, but to get a job, you got to have a network. Well, when you're deployed all the time, and then you come home to all engrossing medical care as a wounded warrior, you don't have time to build that network. So what is the plan? Because if we don't have a plan, then we stand the risk of losing the contribution of the best of that generation. And we have a window of opportunity to get this right before the next conflict. Because if we don't get it right, we will lose the trust of the American public, which we can't afford to do when we have an all-volunteer force. This is an area of focus for me. It's the VA's job. The VA does an amazing job. I have just been so impressed with the VA. The VA can and shouldn't do it alone. 
All of us enjoy the benefits of freedom every day. All of us have a role to play. And so I think we as a nation have got to come together and say, how do we take care of these wounded warriors? And what is our national strategy in preparation for the next conflict? And this is a pastor because I see some warning signs on the horizon for this. The first is that the economy, there are any number of philanthropic organizations that support wounded warriors. How does all this come together into a coordinated plan? And if you look at the donations on which those organizations depend, well, they're impacted by the economy. And the lives of wounded warriors are impacted by the economy. We talk about inflation going up. That means prices go up for our wounded warriors and their families. And can they make a living wage? And if you look at what they can get in terms of disability payments and things like that, and compare that to what's required for a living wage or what the average U.S. salary is, there are challenges there. And so what is our plan for that? How do we ensure that we connect these heroes with employers and get them set up for success in the future? We have a czar for this, a czar for that. Who's the czar for wounded warriors? And how do we bring together a whole of nation response in this window of opportunity that we've got before the next conflict? That's why this is a passion for me. So when the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy to be remembered as? I was blessed to work with the finest men and women I have ever known that our nation has ever produced. A team that made a difference for countless thousands around the world every single day. I was blessed with that. In the face of unprecedented change, I'd like to think that people realize that I kept the patient at the center of my thinking and every decision I made. I was not afraid to tell truth to power. And that's important because I mentor a fair number of young folks and I tell them, you have to be willing to tell truth to power. And if you're working for an organization that's going to shoot you for doing that, you're working for the wrong organization. So you almost have to be fatalistic about it. I'd like to think that I was able to do that. I'd like to think that with this amazing team with whom I was honored to serve, we put in place those building blocks that will be necessary for success in the future joint force mission of honoring that trust, that our true north, to be able to look in the eyes of every mom and dad whose son or daughter serves in our military and tell them that their son or daughter will get the best care our nation can offer, and we will do all in our power to return them home safely and alive. And I'd like to think that in a period of unprecedented, enormous challenge and change, we honored the trust. We've been speaking with retired Navy Vice Admiral Forrest Faison on War Docs podcast. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you, Doug, and thank you, Kevin. It's been a real honor for me to be able to speak with you today and to talk about an organization that I love and the opportunity of a lifetime. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.